Chapter Eleven of the Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Moon Pool, Chapter Eleven, The Flame-Tipped Shadows. Marikinov nodded his head solemnly as Olaf finished. Da, he said, that which comes from here took them both, the woman and the child. Da. They came clasped within it, and the stone shut upon them. But why it left the child behind, I do not understand." "'How do you know that?' I cried in amazement. "'Because I saw it,' answered Merikinov simply. "'Not only did I see it, but hardly had I time to make escape through the entrance before it passed whirling and murmuring, and its battle sounds all joyous. Da! It was what you call the squeak close, that—' "'Wait a moment,' I said, stilling Larry with a gesture. "'Do I understand you to say that you were within this place?' Merikinov actually beamed upon me. "'Da, Dr. Goodwin,' he said. "'I went in when that which comes from it went out.' I gaped at him, stricken dumb. Into Larry's bellicose attitude crept a suggestion of grudging respect. Olaf, trembling, watched silently. Dr. Goodwin, and my impetuous young friend, you, went on Merikinov after a moment's silence, and I wondered vaguely why he did not include Huldrickson in his address. It is time that we have an understanding. I have a proposal to make to you also. It is this. We are what you call a bad boat, and all of us are in it. Da, we need all hands, is it not so? Let us put together our knowledge and our brains and resources, and even the punch of a mule is a resource, he looked wickedly at O'Keefe, and pull our boat into quiet waters again. After that— All very well, Merikinov, interjected Larry, but I don't feel very safe in any boat with somebody capable of shooting me through the back. Merikinov waved a deprecatory hand. It was natural, that, he said. Logical, da. Here is a very great secret, perhaps many secrets to my country invaluable." He paused, shaken by some overpowering emotion. The veins in his forehead grew congested, the cold eyes blazed, and the guttural voice harshened. "'I do not apologize, and I do not explain,' rasped Merikinov. "'But I will tell you, da. Here is my country sweating blood in an experiment to liberate the world.' and here are the other nations ringing us like wolves and waiting to spring at our throats at the least sign of weakness. And here are you, Lieutenant O'Keefe, of the English wolves, and you, Dr. Goodwin, of the Yankee pack. And here in this place maybe that will enable my country to win its war for the worker. What are the lives of you two and this sailor to that? Less than the flies I crush with my hand— less than the midges in the sunbeam." He suddenly gripped himself. "'But that is not now the important thing,' he resumed, almost coldly. "'Not that, nor my shooting. Let us squarely the situation face. My proposal is so, that we join interests, and what you call see it through together. Find our way through this place, and those secrets learn of which I have spoken, if we can.' and when that is done we will go our ways, to his own land each, to make use of them for our lands as each of us may. On my part 
I offer my knowledge, and it is very valuable, Dr. Goodwin, and my training. You and Lieutenant O'Keefe do the same, and this man Olaf, what he can do of his strength, for I do not think his usefulness lies in his brains, no. In a fact, Goodwin, broke in Larry as I hesitated, the professor's proposition is this. He wants to know what's going on here, but he begins to realize it's no one man's job, and besides, we have the drop on him. We're three to his one, and we have all his hardware and cutlery. But also, we can do better with him than without him, just as he can do better with us than without us. It's an even break, for a while. But once he gets that information he's looking for, then look out. You and Olaf and I are the wolves and the flies and the midges again, and the strafing will be about due. Nevertheless, with three to one against him, if he can get away with it, he deserves to. I'm for taking him up, if you are." There was almost a twinkle in Merikinov's eyes. "'It is not just as I would have put it, perhaps,' he said. "'But in its skeleton he has right. Nor will I turn my hand against you while we are still in danger here. I pledge you my honor on this.' Larry laughed. "'All right, Professor,' he grinned. I believe you mean every word you say. Nevertheless, I'll just keep the guns." Marikinov bowed imperturbably. "'And now,' he said, "'I will tell you what I know. I found a secret of the door mechanism, even as you did, Dr. Goodwin. But by carelessness my condensers were broken. I was forced to wait while I sent for others, and the waiting might be for months. I took certain precautions and on the first night of this full moon I hid myself within the vault of Chateleur. An involuntary thrill of admiration for the man went through me at the manifest heroism of this leap in the dark. I could see it reflected in Larry's face. "'I hid in the vault,' continued Merikinov, "'and I saw that which comes from here come out. I waited long hours. At last, when the moon was low, it returned.' ecstatically, with a man, a native, in embrace enfolded. It passed through the door, and soon then the moon became low and the door closed. The next night more confidence was mine, yes. And after that which comes had gone. I looked through its open door. I said, it will not return for three hours. While it is away, why shall I not into its home go through the door it has left open? So I went even to here. I looked at the pillars of light, and I tested the liquid on the pool on which they fell. That liquid, Dr. Goodwin, is not water. It is not any fluid known on earth." He handed me a small vial, its neck held in a long thong. "'Take this,' he said, "'and see.' Wonderingly, I took the bottle, dipped it down into the pool. The liquid was extraordinarily light seemed, in fact, to give the vile buoyancy. I held it to the light. It was striated, streaked, as though little living, pulsing veins ran through it. And its blueness, even in the vial, held an intensity of luminousness. Radioactive, said Merikinov. Some liquid that is intensely radioactive. But what it is, I know not at all. Upon the living skin it acts like radium raised to the nth power, and with an element most mysterious added. 
the solution with which I treated him—he pointed to Huldrickson—I had prepared before I came here, from certain information I had. It is largely salts of radium, and its base is Loeb's formula for the neutralization of radium and X-ray burns. Taking this man at once, before the degeneration had become really active, I could negative it. But after two hours I could have done nothing." He paused a moment. Next I studied the nature of these luminous walls. I concluded that whoever had made them knew the secret of the Almighty's manufacture of light from the ether itself. Colossal! Da! But the substance of these blocks confines an atomic, how would you say, atomic manipulation, a conscious arrangement of electrons, light-emitting and perhaps indefinitely so. These blocks are lamps in which oil and wick are electrons drawing light-waves from the ether itself. A Prometheus indeed, this discoverer! I looked at my watch, and that little guardian warned me that it was time to go. I went. That which comes forth returned, this time empty-handed. And the next night I did the same thing. Engrossed in research, I let the moments go by to the danger point, and scarcely was I replaced within the vault when the shining thing raced over the walls, and in its grip the woman and child. Then you came, and that is all. And now, what is it you know? Very briefly, I went over my story. His eyes gleamed now and then, but he did not interrupt me. A great secret, a colossal secret, he muttered when I had ended. We cannot leave it hidden. The first thing to do is to try the door, said Larry, matter of fact. There is no use, my young friend, assured Marikinov mildly. Nevertheless, we'll try, said Larry. We retraced our way through the winding tunnel to the end, but soon even O'Keefe saw that any idea of moving the slab from within was hopeless. We returned to the chamber of the pool. The pillars of light were fainter, and we knew that the moon was sinking. On the world outside before long dawn would be breaking. I began to feel thirst and the blue semblance of water within the silvery rim seemed to glint mockingly as my eyes rested on it. Da! it was Marikinov, reading my thoughts uncannily. Da! we will be thirsty. And it would be very hard for him of us who loses control and drinks of that, my friend. Da! Larry threw back his shoulders, as though shaking a burden from them. This place would give an angel of joy the willies, he said. I suggest that we look around and find something that will take us somewhere. You can bet the people that built it had more ways of getting in than that once-a-month family entrance. Doc, you and Olaf take the left wall. The professor and I will take the right. He loosened one of his automatics with a suggestive movement. After you, professor, he bowed politely to the Russian. We parted and set forth. The chamber widened out from the portal in what seemed to be the arc of an immense circle. The shining walls held a perceptible curve, and from this curvature I estimated that the roof was fully three hundred feet above us. The floor was of smooth, mosaic-fitted blocks of a faintly yellow tinge. They were not light-emitting like the blocks that formed the walls. The radiance from these latter, I noted, had the peculiar quality of thickening a few yards from its source and it was this that produced the effect of the misty, veiled distances. 
As we walked, the seven columns of ray streaming down from the crystalline globes high above us waned steadily. The globe within the chamber lost its prismatic shimmer and became an even gray tone, somewhat like moonlight in a thin cloud. Now before us, out from the wall, jutted a low terrace. It was all of a pearly rose-colored stone, slender, graceful pillars of the same hue. The face of the terrace was about ten feet high, and all over it ran a bas-relief of what looked like short trailing vines, surmounted by five stalks, on the tip of each of which was a flower. We passed along the terrace. It turned in an abrupt curve. I heard a hail, and there, fifty feet away, at the curving end of a wall, identical with that where we stood, were Larry and Marikinov. Obviously, the left side of the chamber was a duplicate of that we had explored. We joined. In front of us, the columned barriers ran back a hundred feet, forming an alcove. The end of this alcove was another wall of the same rose stone, but upon it the design of vines was much heavier. We took a step forward. There was a gasp of awe from the Norseman, a guttural exclamation from Marikinov. For on, rather within, the wall before us, a great oval began to glow, waxed almost to a flame, and then shone steadily out as though from behind it a light was streaming through the stone itself. And within the roseate oval two flame-tipped shadows appeared, stood for a moment, and then seemed to float out upon its surface. The shadows wavered. The tips of flame that nimbus them with flickering points of vermilion pulsed outward, drew back, darted forth again, and once more withdrew themselves. And as they did so, the shadows thickened, and suddenly there before us stood two figures. One was a girl, a girl whose great eyes were golden as the fabled lilies of Quan Yung that were born of the kiss of the sun upon the amber goddess the demons of Lao Tse carved for him, whose softly curved lips were red as the royal coral, and whose golden-brown hair reached to her knees. And the second was a gigantic frog, a woman-frog, head helmeted with carapace of shell, around which a fillet of brilliant yellow jewels shone. Enormous round eyes of blue circled a broad iris of green. Monstrous body of banded orange and white girdled with strand upon strand of the flashing yellow gems, six feet high if an inch, and with one webbed paw of its short, powerfully muscled forelegs, resting upon the white shoulder of the golden-eyed girl. Moments must have passed as we stood in stark amazement, gazing at that incredible apparition. The two figures, although as real as any of those who stood beside me, unphantom-like as it is possible to be, had a distinct suggestion of projection. They were there before us, golden-eyed girl and grotesque frog-woman, complete in every line and curve, and still it was as though their bodies passed back through distances, as though, to try to express the well-nigh inexpressible, the two shapes we were looking upon were the end of an infinite number stretching in fine linked chain far away, of which the eye saw only the nearest, while in the brain some faculty higher than sight recognized and registered the unseen others. The gigantic eyes of the frog-woman took us all in, unwinkingly. 
little glints of phosphorescence shone out within the metallic green of the outer iris ring. She stood upright, her great legs bowed. The monstrous slit of a mouth slightly open, revealing a row of white teeth sharp and pointed as lancets. The paw resting on the girl's shoulder, half covering its silken surface, and from its five webbed digits long yellow claws of polished horn glistened against the delicate texture of the flesh. But if the frog-woman regarded us all, not so did the maiden of the rosy wall. Her eyes were fastened upon Larry, drinking him in with extraordinary intentness. She was tall, far over the average of women, almost as tall, indeed, as O'Keefe himself. Not more than twenty years old, if that, I thought. Abruptly she leaned forward, the golden eyes softened and grew tender, the red lips moved as though she were speaking. Larry took a quick step, and his face was that of one who after countless births comes at last upon the twin soul lost to him for ages. The frog-woman turned her eyes upon the girl. Her huge lips moved, and I knew that she was talking. The girl held out a warning hand to O'Keefe, and then raised it resting each finger upon one of the five flowers of the carved vine close beside her. Once, twice, three times she pressed upon the flower centers, and I noticed that her hand was curiously long and slender, the digits like those wonderful tapering ones the painters we call the primitive gave to their virgins. Three times she pressed the flowers, and then looked intently at Larry once more. A slow, sweet smile curved the crimson lips. She stretched both hands out toward him again eagerly. A burning blush rose swiftly over white breasts and flower-like face. Like the clicking out of a cinematograph, the pulsing oval faded, and golden-eyed girl and frog-woman were gone. And thus it was that Lakla, the handmaiden of the Silent Ones, and Larry O'Keefe, first looked into each other's hearts. Larry stood rapt, gazing at the stone. "'Aelid,' I heard him whisper, "'Aelid of the lips like the red, red rowan and the golden-brown hair.' "'Clearly of the Reynadai,' said Marikinov, "'a development of the fossil labyrinthodonts. You saw her teeth, da?' "'Renedae, yes,' I answered but from the stegocephalia of the order Echodata. Never such a complete indignation as was in O'Keefe's voice as he interrupted. "'What do you mean? Fossils and stego-whatever-it-is?' he asked. "'She was a girl, a wonder-girl, a real girl, and Irish, or I'm not an O'Keefe.' "'We were talking about the frog-woman, Larry,' I said conciliatingly. His eyes were wild as he regarded us. "'Say,' he said, "'if you two had been in the Garden of Eden when Eve took the apple, you wouldn't have had time to give her a look for counting the scales on the snake.' He strode swiftly over to the wall. We followed. Larry paused, stretched up his hand to the flowers on which the tapering fingers of the golden-eyed girl had rested. "'It was here she put up her hand,' he murmured. He pressed caressingly the carved calyxes, once, twice, a third time, even as she had, and silently and softly the wall began to split. On each side a great stone pivoted slowly, and before us a portal stood, 
opening into a narrow corridor glowing with the same rosy luster that had gleamed around the flame-tipped shadows. "'Have your gun ready, Olaf,' said Larry. "'We follow golden eyes,' he said to me. "'Follow?' I echoed stupidly. "'Follow!' he said. "'She came to show us the way. Follow? I'd follow her through a thousand hells!' And with Olaf at one end, O'Keefe at the other, both of them with automatics in hand, and Marikinov and I between them, we stepped over the threshold. At our right, a few feet away, the passage ended abruptly in a square of polished stone, from which came faint rose radiance. The roof of the place was less than two feet over O'Keefe's head. A yard at left of us lifted a four-foot-high, gently curved barricade, stretching from wall to wall, and beyond it was blackness an utter and appalling blackness that seemed to gather itself from infinite depths. The rose glow in which we stood was cut off by the blackness as though it had substance. It shimmered out to meet it, and was checked as though by a blow. Indeed, so strong was the suggestion of sinister, straining force within the rayless opacity that I shrank back, and Marikinov with me. Not so O'Keefe. Olaf beside him, he strode to the wall and peered over. He beckoned us. "'Flash your pocket-light down there,' he said to me, pointing into the thick darkness below us. The little electric circle quivered down as though afraid, and came to rest upon a surface that resembled nothing so much as clear black ice. I ran the light across, here and there. The floor of the corridor was of a substance so smooth, so polished, that no man could have walked upon it. It sloped downward at a slowly increasing angle. "'We'd have to have non-skid chains and brakes on our feet to tackle that,' mused Larry. Abstractedly, he ran his hands over the edge on which he was leaning. Suddenly they hesitated and then gripped tightly. "'That's a queer one,' he exclaimed. His right palm was resting upon a rounded protuberance, on the side of which were three small circular indentations. "'A queer one,' he repeated, and pressed his fingers upon the circles. There was a sharp click. The slabs that had opened to let us through swung swiftly together. A curiously rapid vibration thrilled through us. A wind arose and passed over our heads. A wind that grew and grew until it became a whistling shriek then a roar, and then a mighty humming, to which every atom in our bodies pulsed in rhythm painful almost to disintegration. The rosy wall dwindled in a flash to a point of light and disappeared. Wrapped in the clinging, impenetrable blackness, we were racing, dropping, hurling at a frightful speed. Where? And ever that awful humming of the rushing wind and the lightning cleaving of the tangible dark. So it came to me oddly, must the newly released soul race through the sheer blackness of outer space up to the throne of justice, where God sits high above all suns. I felt Marikinov creep close to me, gripping my nerve and flashing my pocket-light. Saw Larry standing, peering, peering ahead, and Huldrickson, one strong arm around his shoulders, bracing him. And then the speed began to slacken. Millions of miles, it seemed, below the sound of the unearthly hurricane, I heard Larry's voice, thin and ghost-like, beneath its clamor. "'Got it!' shrilled the voice. "'Got it! 
Don't worry. The wind died down to the roar, passed back through the whistling shriek, and diminished to a steady whisper. In the comparative quiet, O'Keefe's tones now came in normal volume. Some little shoot the shoots, what? he shouted. Say, if they had this at Coney Island or the Crystal Palace. Press all the way in these holes, and she goes top high. Diminish pressure, diminish speed. The curve of this, dashboard, here sends the wind shooting up over our heads, like a windshield. What's behind you? I flashed the light back. The mechanism on which we were ended in another wall exactly similar to that over which O'Keefe crouched. "'Well, we can't fall out, anyway,' he laughed. "'Wish to hell I knew where the brakes were. Look out!' We dropped dizzily down an abrupt, seemingly endless slope, fell, fell as into an abyss, then shot abruptly out of the blackness into a throbbing green radiance. O'Keefe's fingers must have pressed down upon the controls, for we leaped forward almost with the speed of light. I caught a glimpse of luminous immensities on the verge of which we flew, of depths inconceivable and flitting through the incredible spaces, gigantic shadows as of the wings of Israfel, which are so wide, say the Arabs, the world can cower under them like a nestling, and then, again, the living blackness. What was that? This from Larry, with the nearest approach to awe that he had yet shown. Truldum, croaked the voice of Olaf. Chart, this from Erikinov. What a space! Have you considered, Dr. Goodwin, he went on after a pause, a curious thing? We know, or at least is it not that nine out of ten astronomers believe, that the moon was hurled out of this same region we now call the Pacific when the earth was yet like molasses, almost molten, I should say. And is it not curious that that which comes from the moon chamber needs the moon rays to bring it forth, is it not? And is it not significant again that the stone depends upon the moon for operating? Da! And last, such a space in Mother Earth as we just glimpse. How else could it have been torn but by some gigantic birth, like that of the moon? Da, I do not put forward these as statements of fact, no, but as suggestions. I started. There was so much that this might explain. An unknown element that responded to the moon rays in opening the moon door. The blue pool with its weird radioactivity. And the force within it that reacted to the same light-stream. It was not inconceivable that a film had drawn over the world wound, a film of earth-flesh which drew itself over that colossal abyss after our planet had borne its satellite. That world-womb did not close when her shining child sprang forth. It was impossible. And all that we know of earth-depth is four miles of her eight thousand. What is there at the heart of earth? What of that radiant unknown element upon the moon-mount Tycho? And what of that element unknown to us as part of earth, which is seen only in the corona of the sun at eclipse, that we call coronium? Yet the earth is child of the sun, as the moon is earth's daughter. And what of that other unknown element we find glowing green in the far-flung nebulae? 
green as that we had just passed through, and that we call nebulium. Yet the sun is child of the nebulae, as the earth is child of the sun, and the moon is child of the earth. And what miracles are there in coronium and nebulium, which, as the child of nebula and sun, we inherit? Yes, and in Tycho's enigma which came from earth-heart. We were flashing down to earth-heart, and what miracles were hidden there? End of chapter 11